This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Well, welcome folks to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principle and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education, and I now work with schools to help them find areas where they can improve and help make it happen. Greetings, folks. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. And as we start today, we'd like to thank our mission partner, Buoyancy Digital, who is proud to be the inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series. A digital advertising consultancy with an ethos, Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been a guest on the podcast, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers. They're a great company to chat with. For more information on working with Scott or Buoyancy Digital, visit buoyancydigital.com or Scott R Media on LinkedIn. Hey there, Jethro. Hey, Fred. Happy Thursday. It is, in fact, a happy and snowy Thursday here in eastern New York, so glad to be able to join you. And I will tell you that this is an interview to which I've been looking forward to for some time. We have the pleasure of speaking with a friend and colleague from Alaska named Keith Zamudio. 
I will give you a quick rundown of his bio, and then we'll get into what I'm sure will be a really interesting conversation about his work in the state. So, Mr. Zamudio began his career as an educator in 1979 in Summerton, Arizona, where he met his wife, best friend, and partner, Kathy, of 36 years, also a lovely person who uh, mm-hmm. I've had the pleasure to get to know. He has been an educator for nearly 40 years, 33 in Alaska. Keith began exploring the use of instructional technologies as a learning tool in 1984. In 1988, he began to teach fourth graders to keyboard and learn basic file management skills on Apple IIEs, which is a dating item for sure. In 1999, he took his first technology director job for the Chatham School District in Yangoon, Alaska. While with SERRC, Alaska's Educational Resource Center, Keith was itinerant tech director for St. Mary's School District and facilitated the work of IT departments for several Alaskan school districts. As technology director for the Cordova School District in Cordova, Alaska, 2006 to 2019, Keith implemented and managed a K-12 one-to-one laptop program. It was during his tenure with Cordova that education saw the explosion of personal devices used in the learning environment. And Keith has been a member of the Alaska Society for Technology and Education, ASTI, since 1993, which is where I met him, and served on ASTI's board between 2006 and 2019, also served as president in 2010 and 2013. ASTI's mission, as we uh, discovered with Jeannie Seidler a little while ago, is Mm. to um, promote access to technology, connectivity to information resources, and technology integration for all Alaskan learners. And the last thing I want to close with is that not only is Keith an experienced IT educator, but a duly recognized one as well. He has been the recipient of the Excellence for Children Award on behalf of the Alaska PTA and White Cliff PTA in 1995. He was recognized with a Mr. Technology Award, absolutely love the name of that, presented by the Ketchikan Gateway Borough School District School Board in 1995. Uh, He was awarded the Milken National Educator Award for the state of Alaska in 1998. And he received an Alaska Legislative Citation which was presented to him by members of the 21st Alaska State Legislature in 1999. So with all of that, Keith, what a career. What a real pleasure to have you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, and I've got to add something here because a lot of people, especially over the last year, have learned a lot about distance learning, remote connecting, and things like that. And uh, Keith's role in helping Alaska be connected, which is bigger than anyone can imagine, unless you've actually been there. Uh, He's learned and taught and forgotten more about remote learning than most of us have learned over the past year uh, with the pandemic. So just want to put that out there. That's an important piece that is a uh, personal insight that many people probably won't recognize the value of um, just by hearing his bio being read. Well, that's a great, great point, Jethro. And having actually been to Alaska, I can testify that there is a lot of real estate up there to cover. So it's pretty impressive. Well, Keith, welcome. And uh, thank you. It's just great to have you. What I'd like to to do, (laughs) what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, is really pretty basic. Start at the beginning. How did you recognize that technology was going to be a force in education? 
Well, it, you know, the dating is all there. And I was teaching my kids uh, science and the astronomy in particular, our solar system. And a science teacher at my school in Summerton, Arizona, had managed to acquire the resources to put a computer lab together. And so all of us kind of sat and watched, you know, as this lab was going up. And, and as time evolved, I learned that I could take my kids there and they had a piece of software done by Mac Minnesota Education Computer Consortium, I believe is an acronym for that. And uh, the, you could plug in like a walking to the moon, taking a train, an automobile, a jet, a rocket, or to other points in the universe, or excuse me, our solar system. And the math that came out of that lesson back in the whenever that happened, um, was beyond anything I expected. We were dealing with huge numbers, numbers I'd never had really dealt with in the classroom at any instructional level. And yet we were out there and having these conversations. And I guess I realized that it was, it could be a very powerful tool. Writing process was probably the biggest motivator for me. I always believed as an educator, if I could help my students attain a level of literacy where their spoken vocabulary, their written and uh, uh, reading comprehension were all about the same level, then they would be able to develop their literacy skills. And it's all hard, but that writing process for me uh, was particularly arduous. And uh, I saw the computer as a tool to liberate the writer. And so, you know, you could cut and paste, you could copy, you drag things from one to the next, you know, it was just amazing. And so I started looking at ways to uh, leverage that so that the kids could develop the writing process and the skills of the writing process. And so that drove me and it seemed like if I was going to take kids to a computer and sit them down, I better teach them how to keyboard. And boy, that was the beginning of the end. My life wasn't the same as an educator from that point on. So yeah, that's the nutshell version of it. I took a quick look. I noticed that Summerton, Arizona is about as far southwest as you can get in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so right that must have given you some experience in terms of the potential <laughs> right. That must have given you some idea in terms of the potential distance issues. When you moved up to Alaska, how did you start uh, getting involved in, in that remote learning piece? Well, actually, the remote learning piece evolved as I took my first position as tech director in Angoon uh, with the Chatham School District. And we were beginning to you know, have a certain amount of reliance with the network. You know, it was predictable. For me, the next step would be how could we extend the classroom using these technologies? So I started investigating uh, distance learning, and I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. Uh, It became real quickly apparent that there were a lot of pieces of the puzzle that had to be put into place if you wanted to have a distance learning environment. And at the time, the Chatham School District was the size, and still is, I guess, the size of uh, the state of Wisconsin. And so 
there was some, you know, needs there, you know, where we had high school kids up in a remote place like Klukwan. There was another village or another logging camp operating at that time, Cube Cove. Well, most of our districts had small numbers of students and not large numbers where, you know, you could have a biology class like in a traditional classroom. And so our thoughts were if, you know, we could centralize some of that and, uh, you know, the kids could have opportunities for learning. And uh, so as I started putting all those pieces of the puzzle together, getting content, making sure there was infrastructure in place, and then the teachers were ready to facilitate this kind of learning. I don't know that any of us really understood all of that. The one of the things that hit me dead on right off the bat was did a lot of work, a few months, went and looked at programs, and I had some good support from the district to explore it. And I got it all kind of set up so we could do a test drive. And uh, the first encounter I had is contractual. Who's going to pay me to do this? Where's the extra duty time going to come from? And Classic, you know, yeah. and I was, <laughs> I was just stopped dead in my tracks because I, I had just gotten out of the classroom and uh, I was still of the mindset that, hey, any tools I can get from my tool bag, I need them. I'm going to get them, you know, and I may not use them often, but I'll use them when I need Educators need to have the mentality of taking their tools with them as they go to different places to teach and be leaders and things like that, that you bring the set of tools with you. And the more you have in that tool bag, the better it is. And even if you never use a tool in a particular district or school, um, having it there makes it possible for you to do other things. So in thinking about the the way the world is now with technology and, and how people are using it, what are some of the tools that people need to have in their tool bags as they're navigating the world that we live in now? Well, I, I, information. I mean, I know it's a kind of a vague answer, but really the more you understand about your uh, digital presence and the world that you're interacting in, uh, living in, playing in, working in, uh, the better off you're going to be. I still think in many, for many ways, we have the cart before the horse. Education is really good at that, especially with technology. Very seldom did I get to say, well, here's a new piece of technology. Let's see what we might want to do with this or not. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, it was always after the fact. So I really think that's the key is having a broad base of understanding. Yeah. So having a broad base of understanding, I think is, is super important, but like you mentioned, there are some things that you don't know you're going to need in advance. And so you, you know, you, you find a way to, to save up those things. What are some of your strategies for keeping track of all the, all the things that you're learning and the, the decisions that you need to keep focused on making in the future? Well, I don't know that there's a really good, you know, like one size fits all answer. Um, one of the things I think I've seen evolve in your shows or in your podcasts is that it's almost a situational environment. I mean, you can have the same toys or the same devices, uh, but the way that players use them and interact with them is can be a paradigm shift in many ways. One of the things I was fond of saying is don't try to know it all. 
I don't think you can adopt or be an expert in all things technology. There's, it's just too hard to keep up. But you do want to have a, a good foundation of what you're doing with it and what it's going to do for you and what you're giving up <laughs> as well as what you're gaining. I don't know how, how easy that is to have, to have that happen, but I believe having the conversation is first and foremost. The more we just, you know, things like this is this show is really good because it gets out a lot of the different nuances of the issues that we're faced as we try to understand how to present ourselves in digital environments and learn that it's really not much different than real life. <laughs> you are who you are and uh, you can guise it and hide it, but eventually your true self comes out. Keith, let me ask you this. In terms of your career in IT in Alaska, what would you say was the most significant technological change that you saw over the years? Well, it seemed like Alaska was always behind the eight ball when it came to connectivity. I actually know someone who bought from AT&T most of the circuits that uh, were run into the state of Alaska. Nobody knew what to do with them. They were all put in, you know, pre, quote unquote, pre-internet, so to speak. And AT&T in particular just had them kind of laying around, was glad to sell them to somebody. Of course, they took them all back eventually. (laughs) So, but I think that was really a real game changer is when we got to the point where we had more reliable connectivity. In Cordova, when I first got there in 2006, it was all satellite-based, you know, 700 millisecond delay for any kind of information. And then when we, in 2009, 10, we got uh, fiber link established and microwave established, and uh, that upped the uh, reliability of the service. And I think it allowed for learning and educators in particular to explore those environments with a little more confidence. Still too many times, and I was really fond of saying this about professional development, that if you're going to introduce something to a group of educators, it better work the first time. So I think having that reliability and knowing that you can be connected Even today, I was nervous. Uh, Our internet at the house here has been a little bit spotty. The weather's a little bit uh, goofy today. We're we're having strong winds, and I'm hoping we maintain as we go through this podcast. Well, so far, it seems like it's it's working out all right, and that's that's good. I think that piece about, uh, one, nobody knew what to do with those cables that came in. I think that's really profound that you would think we'd have a plan for that kind of stuff. But a few weeks ago, we talked to Awo Aminya, who's dealing with the internet being brought brought to Ghana to all places. They were having some of the same issues. And it's, it's just amazing to me that, that we don't have a better plan in place for receiving these new technologies like the internet Mm -hmm. to, to our communities. But it, it still is a challenge even today. And it's yep. not like every single person on the earth, excuse me, has the internet yeah. already, but as right. people are, are gaining it, we have to have plans in place. So one of the things you said was that, you know, make sure the technology works when you present it to, uh, to educators, for example. Um, mm-hmm. But then how, as you are introducing new technology, how do you one determine whether or not it's, it's good to use and can a single person make that determination 
And two, how do you, wow. how do you see the best way to teach technology to other people? We've come a long ways in understanding the role of technology in education. I think uh, we had a tendency to view it as a separate field of study. And I think there's been attempts made at that. And obviously there are fields of study available for curriculum development. Um, but I think the other thing that we learned is that really it's the technology is a tool, whatever form it manifests itself in. And uh, knowing how to use that tool and when to use that tool or those tools is the real secret to all of that. It's really interesting. I heard in, uh, it was either this week's or last week's podcast where they talked about, uh, you know, um, the rules that one would use to make decisions about what they do in the classroom. And often as educators, we go by our gut level feelings. You know, we've been trained and we're trusted and, uh, but we don't always, always have the, foundation to argue a, uh, a particular reason why you're you're feeling that this is a good thing to do. And I think that's what we've done with technology. Uh, when I first looked at it, I thought, geez, if we could connect this classroom to the internet, we'd have access to the greatest library in the world. And I didn't realize all the other things that would be a, a part of pulling that wire to the classroom. It took me three years to get internet access in my classroom through a modem. I had to fool around, fool around, fool around with the technology, even mess with the modem scripts to get everybody to talk and handshake appropriately. And I even threatened the, my, with my principal, who was a really ab strong advocate, I said, you know, if they don't come in and fix that phone line so I can put a modem on it, I'm going to call the telephone company and have them draw my own phone line to my room. But yeah, I remember one time I was messing with modem scripts, you know, my whole class was sitting there at about 25 kids, fourth graders. And, uh, you know, they were waiting and I was down behind the computer, you know, doing this and doing that. And all of a sudden, the room got quieter. I mean, really quieter. And I, my, my teacher sense said, and then something else is up here, Keith. And I kind of looked up and looked around. There's the principal looking over my shoulder. <laughs> you know, oh, I'm trying to get the internet on. <laughs> yeah. That was my answer. It's <laughs> so. uh, funny you share that story because I had a similar situation um, you know, I, I was in my first year teaching and brought in some old Emacs and connected them to the, the network so my kids could start blogging. And there was a very similar kind of yeah. situation happening there where I was working on trying to get something fixed. And my kids, you know, are basically just waiting. Of course, I gave them an assignment, but they're much more interested in watching what I'm doing than yeah. doing the work, right? <laughs> and so exactly. it, it, the same kind of thing happened, got silent. And then, you know, sure enough, there's the assistant principal, in my case, standing there. Yeah you know, basically saying, what are you doing? Uh, mm -hmm. Hiding over there. I can't see you when I walk in the room. So obviously something is not right. You know, I was working on getting the kids an opportunity to blog and share their voices with the world, which was in that school, a very uh, strange thing to be doing that nobody thought I should be doing. Um, right. So that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Getting computer, even doing keyboarding in the classroom was a pretty interesting step. 
one of the things that was in my favor was that I was at a school that was slated to be closed. And when they hired me, they said, it's only going to be for one year, Keith. Is that okay? Oh, you bet. And uh, 13 years later, I resigned my position from that building. Yeah, classic. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, getting it all kind of rolling was a little bit simpler because, you know, there weren't all the same stakeholders at the school. We were pretty much left with whoever was still around once the school had migrated to the new buildings and all that stuff. So, um, but it changed everything I did in the classroom. Uh, subtly at first, dramatically, I stopped teaching spelling, traditional spelling, uh, but I, I didn't stop teaching spelling. <laughs> spelling still counted. It's just the computer enabled me to, I believe, find a more meaningful way for the kids to build their knowledge base. And in this case, with words that are part of their language. So uh, it, well, okay. it was shifted <laughs> if, if you don't mind I mean I think that's just a great segue into a topic that fascinates me which is the the changes that you saw in the kids over the years right as yeah. as the technology is introduced first on a classroom by classroom and then on a desk by desk basis and then eventually kids are bringing their own sophisticated technology yeah. into the schools. Yeah. What I'm wondering is just your observations on changes in how the kids behaved and how they learned yeah. as the technology shifted. And of course, particularly the influence of, of first the World Wide Web and then social media. Well, you know, with the World Wide Web in particular, you know, its only main access initially was through a computer. And, uh, you know, with my experience right. in uh, making them available to the kids, um, it was pretty controlled, you know, pretty much in the lab or in the classroom. I was doing some uh, checking out of uh, old Mac SEs. I had managed to acquire several of those and got them back up and running. And then I checked them out to, uh, you know, kids in the class. And I was, you know, pretty careful with this, but in the sense that I wanted to be sure that if I put that in the hands of a family or that the family was ready for it and okay about it, but that it would be leveraged as a learning tool, not a gaming station. That was probably my first obstacle in the school was getting rid of this mentality that the only thing the computer was good for was gaming. And so in the early years, the kids were always, would, we'd go in the lab, when are you going to play games? When are you going to play games? Because that's all they did up until fourth grade and of course I was shifting and said well this is we're here we're doing our schoolwork and we're doing our learning and that's what these are this tool is for and it took about four years for that conversation to change in the building and then I've kind of noticed after a while that I wasn't hearing that question anymore when did we get the game you know it just kind of went away it wasn't part of our culture and then when I tried to use gaming as an incentive to do other things, it fell flat on its face. <laughs> they just were not interested in using that as a motivator. So that's pretty remarkable, actually. <laughs> yeah, it took years to get to that point. Also, uh, I'll have to say that. But but I do think that it was good for the kids in the in the sense that um, you know they acquired a skill set that definitely was foundation for their futures. 
in those early years, I remember families being just reluctant to even have a computer come to the house. I don't know if I want a computer in the house. I'm not too sure about that. And uh, one family in particular, I, I convinced that, well, it's not connected to anything. At those days, it wasn't. It was a standalone device. And I said, all your daughter is going to be doing primarily is writing and doing her homework. And so they kind of reluctantly said, well, okay, we'll give it a shot. And, and then the year went through, and, and she actually did quite well with the, 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 the tool. And the year ended, and uh, I always regretted missing this. They brought the computer back. I was not around at the time. So when I got back to my room, it was sitting out in the hall. Uh, they're kind of forlorn, and a note pinned on it. And the note said, Mr. Samudio, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hung that note in my office for years afterwards because I knew that something else had happened with that family that I probably don't have any real clue on other than they acquired a level of comfort with the technology. And they saw what a powerful tool it could be for learning. What I love about that story, Keith, is that we don't have an understanding of the power of technology ourselves. And going back to the question before about, you know, how do we, how do we teach technology to people or can one person make a decision about technology and whether or not it's going to be beneficial? I, I have this ongoing battle in my mind of we should adopt virtually every technology that comes to us to see what we can do with it. But then at the same time, we shouldn't push that on anyone, but we should expose them to it. And I don't know if that distinction yeah. makes sense or not, but it's something that I've, I've thought for a long time. What's, what's your thought on that, on forcing it versus training them on it and, and that balance right. there? I agree really with uh, just the way you're saying. I think professional development is everything. As much as I you know, worked hard at making sure there was ubiquity with the backbone and that you could rely on the resource. It was really all about professional development. I worked real hard at making sure that I could provide as much professional development opportunities as possible. I was also a tech director that, and this one I know will stop a lot of people, but I didn't lock things down, quote unquote. I did with the kids. But, and I didn't do that initially either, but they took me about a week to realize, oops, I got to lock these laptops. Actually, much quicker than that, but it took me a week to recover. <laughs> so, um, but with the staff, I pretty much gave them free reign and they had administrative rights to their machine. They were invited to explore new technologies, new apps, you know, vet them to a certain extent if they really felt like uh, they were. It would be something that would be useful. You know, I always taught my staff, talk to me. The more you talk to me, the more I'm going to be able to help you and find the resources to empower you. And, uh, and the ones that, you know, learned to work with me, learned to come talk. They knew I wouldn't pull it right out of my cupboard. Maybe, maybe I would, <laughs> you know, but eventually that resource would show up. So I really did trust my uh, staff to 
you know, make good decisions and find the tools that they would like to leverage in the classroom. And then I expected them to, and we had to learn this, to work with me. Don't just bring a new technology. Uh, I remember one teacher brought an Apple TV in and was trying to put it on the network. And uh, I'm sure for really good reasons, you know, but they never talked to me about it. And, and there were all kinds of network protocols that need to be addressed so that that thing could be a graceful device on a school network for learning purposes. I think that over time, the staff and I learned to have those kinds of communications. In all honesty, though, I'll have to tell you that I would have really liked to have seen a broader base of stakeholders involved in the use of technology in education. We always aspired to that. Uh, you may recall the days of tech plans in the state of Alaska. I'm sure most other states had them too. They were like an anchor or a millstone around my neck, those tech plans. And not because they weren't good um, necessarily. I thought that they uh, were an excellent vehicle for providing a framework from which a district and even down to a school could look at how they might leverage and implement technology uh, safely. But often those tech plans really sat on a shelf and collected dust. That was so frustrating about them. Uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went into them only to have them sit and collect dust. So, um, but I do think that they were good roadmaps and they provided us some guidance on how we proceed in keeping up, exploring new technologies and, and not throwing out the old ones that are working uh, and, and did work. Yeah. And, you know, most things in education that we put a lot of effort into end up just on a shelf. So don't feel too bad about that. But the other thing is that I think the reason people didn't talk to you was because in so many people's minds, the IIT department's first answer is no all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's easy for that to happen. And I know for me, I, it was a lot easier to just figure things out for myself and make it work how I could. Um, in fact, in one district, our computers were so locked down that um, my computer basically was a paperweight on my desk. Yeah. And I just used my personal computer on the network right. because it was better than but, trying yeah. to figure out how to make that one work. And so you could manage and, it. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I, I don't think that I uh, made friends with the IT director in that, in that situation, right. but it, it certainly makes you think that if, if you can trust, as you mentioned, trust your teachers to make good choices. And, you know, this extends to other industries as well. We're just talking about education because it's both of our specialties, but if you can, if you can trust your users to do things well, then that's good, but it's even better to train them appropriately on how to, how to do certain things and bringing a new device that connects to the internet onto the network you know, being open to that conversation and having the first answer be, yes, let's figure out how to do it, I think is really certainly a powerful approach to take. It can get you in trouble, though, too. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. and I'm sure if there's IT people listening, I'm sure there are. They're going, ah, because I've well, seen and, that and reaction. And, and former school board member here as well. Yeah, so. yeah there you go. <laughs> Uh, but I also think that it, it provided an atmosphere of learning 
And, and that was always the hard part as a network administrator, you know, cause in the business world, you lock everything down period. And I know of businesses where the, in the end, the user at the end of that network, whatever node they're sitting at, all they're doing is the one thing the computer is allowed to do. Everything else is being shut down. You know, John Katz wrote a article back in, I believe, 97, called The Rights of Kids in the Digital Age. You might be familiar with it. Found it early in my explorations during my grad program in particular. But what he argues is three things that I think have been foundational for me as IT director, a parent, uh, a teacher, and that is that you teach kids to be responsible users of technology. And then you, the second is that you trust kids to be responsible users of technology. That's a biggie. And then the third piece is you hold them accountable when they break that trust. And that's a biggie too. And on a personal level, uh, I one time took the internet away from both of my boys. They were young, elementary. One was sixth grade and the other one was probably third at the time. And they were up beyond bedtime online gaming and they had been put to bed. And, and so I took away internet for a week. The IT guy and me wanted to go to the router and block their MAC addresses and be done with it. Game over. And, uh, but that article that I just alluded to taught me, no, there's this trust factor. And so, you know, if I went to the router and blocked their MAC addresses, then the message is really clear to the end user. I don't trust you because I blocked your MAC address because I don't trust you. And I didn't want to have that be a part of the culture of our family. So, you know, if you were to ask my boy today, if he remembers that incident, he shakes his head and says, no, I don't remember any of that, dad, you know, but I know what he does remember uh, at a subconscious level. And that is that his dad trusts him. And I think it's a good positive message for people to get from you. But in the end, you have to be prepared to have what to handle when those trust relationships are broken. Yeah, boy, I, I just love that as far as the, the parenting aspect of that story, that it really does make a huge difference when you start with trust rather than start with rules or start with consequences. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. that is so important. And I think we can all take that message, uh, you know, to our own individual families and, and how we interact with our kids, to our schools and, and to our workplaces to it's, put those things in place. That's so powerful. Well, Jethro, actually, if you don't mind my interjecting, because this seems a good spot for it, that um, Keith, as you know, uh, the, a lot of the conversations that you and I have had over the years um, definitely helped to inspire the raising cyberethical kids because mm-hmm. that attitude that you're expressing is imbued in that, that mm-hmm. it's less of a, a strict black and white rules-based approach, but more of a conversation and consequences approach right. so, that, so that there's real buy-in from the kids mm-hmm. about how yeah. the family is going to function. 
Right. And, and it makes such a huge difference. And by the way, just as a shout out to how wonderful the internet is, while I was listening to you, I talked to Jethro about that article. I pulled up the link to it, which we'll include in the show notes. It's actually a 1996 Wired oh, article. <laughs> so oh, now I'll have yeah. to sit mm-hmm. down and read it. Yeah. Oh, I've, I keep, uh, through the years, I kept rereading that article and I was always impressed with its relevance. And I think it's because he's talking about the human condition first. And I believe that's what, where we need to keep our focus is, you know, what's the end result on the human being, I guess. I agree with that. And, and we've said so many times on the show that, that the focus of these conversations is, or ideally is less on the technology because mm-hmm. technology changes and, and more on the behavior. If you're, if you're right. bringing to the technology core behaviors and values, those persist regardless of what technology you're using. Well, I really appreciated uh, that aspect of uh, raising cyber ethical kids. And, and that is that, you know, I don't know that I understood that at the time, Fred, when I was composing the one that I used for my boys when I wanted to give them their cell phones. It just seemed like I had to have some kind of agreement, you know, of usage. Uh, And the way we set it up uh, is that the phones were Christmas gifts. And, uh, but the acceptable use policy was first. So when they picked it up, the first thing they got to look at was the acceptable use policy. <laughs> and they couldn't crack the you know, box open until they read it and signed it. And uh, my youngest <laughs> signed it in a heartbeat. <laughs> I, don't, I know he didn't read it. <laughs> and, uh, and he was off and running. He had that thing. He was busy playing and you know, connecting and all that. The older boy was very thoughtful, read it a few times, put it down. I could just see him contemplating it and he eventually signed it. And then he opened up his phone, but it was interesting to watch the differences. And then the younger one who signed so quickly lost his phone in the first day. Now this is Christmas and I'm outside (laughs) shoveling snow and he took the phone into the room uh, the first night. And of course got caught. And so I took the phone away for the day. That was his consequence. You lose it for a day because you, you know. And so I'm outside shoveling snow and, and he sticks his head out the door. He says, Dad, can't I please have my phone? I promise I'll never do it again. And in my heart, I'm thinking, you know, Keith, it's Christmas. Give him a break, you know, all that stuff. And then the next thought was, yeah, Keith, you do that now. You're going to be doing it for the rest of your life. <laughs> so I looked up, said, yeah, you can have it back tomorrow, like I said. And I went back to shoveling snow. <laughs> that was it. So, anywho. That, that's such a good story that illustrates so much of, of what we talk about that you, you need to have clear boundaries and rules and you need to talk about it. And then when it, even when it's hard, you still got to stick to those things and make sure that your kids, that they understand what, what is allowed and what isn't. And, and, you know, one of the things that we've, that I've heard so many times from parents is I wish I could go back to the beginning and I wish I could have handled this differently. And the fact that you actually had a, uh, a written down, 
policy agreement, I think is just so fantastic about how you're going to use your device and, and what is allowed and what isn't because too often we, you know, we go beyond trust and, and, and just let kids use these powerful tools without any thought or discussion about what it's going to be. And, and we really need to have those clear uh, definitive conversations, which is so important. And, you know, Fred and I have a, a way to, to help parents do that. Um, you, you can check out, um, what was the link that we came up with for that again? I forgot the name of it, Fred. Family Cyber Safe or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, actually, I need to look that up myself. Yeah. And we're still populating that. So it's going to take yeah. a little bit to um, get our act together. But yeah, um, familycybervalues.com. That's the there one. There we go. I was just looking it up. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we will be filling that with some concrete advice for parents. But it, yeah. it this Keith, this really does deserve to be a shout out for you because this project, a good chunk of this project is inspired by what you were doing with your boys. And I think that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the thing that I've added to it is to really add the emphasis on, on parent behavior as well, that, that one of the things that can make this a stronger and more effective agreement within the family is for the kids to have the sense that their parents are thinking about their own device use and their own device behavior as yeah. well. And that, yep. that, that's a sign of respect to the kids, which is important, but also, you know, the mental health of the parents, which right. is not a small thing. Yeah, and I had a clause in there that we would review this, that they could open it up the discussion to review the contract if, yeah, yeah. if ever they felt the need to. We never did. Uh, we never pulled the contract out after that, to be really honest. I don't know that and I never really had to go dig in their devices. Uh, one of the rules were that they didn't change any of their passwords without clearing it with mom and dad. And, uh, and you know what, they respected that one. I, I, my youngest, uh, you know, had different endings and all that, but nonetheless, in the end, when I got his phone back, and wanted to put the code in that we all agreed would be the code, it was still the same code. And uh, I think that gets back to that trust. He knew I trusted him to do these things. And so, you know, he uh, he honored that trust because I think he valued it. Wow. That's That's a great story. Yeah. I, I, I think Keith, that it's a, it's, it's a reflection of square dealing, right? That the kids knew that you would live up to your word and yeah. that, you know, that w- if they did the same, they would be respected for that. Um, yes. In terms of the, you know, it's interesting because you bring a very specific set of values, I think, to your work or, or you did to your work mm-hmm. as an IT director. What are your thoughts on how you balance the different expectations of households? I mean, obviously, you'd have people with very differing yeah. attitudes towards technology. Well, you know, that makes me think of the fable by uh, Arnold O'Bell, the bad kangaroo. And you know, in a nutshell, the little kangaroo at school is just a terror, you know, just tearing up the classroom. 
And finally, the teacher decides to go to the house to have a conversation with the parents, only to find that the behaviors that the little kangaroo is doing in the classroom is what they do at home. Right. <laughs> it's normal behavior. And so, you know, I think that's what most educators are faced with is uh, that balancing act. But I also know that there's... Uh, a level at one point where, okay, that's what you do at home. And I use that story in my classroom for this reason. What you do at home is one thing, but what you do here is another. And you have to be able to, to separate those two environments and conduct yourself accordingly. And uh, now we can just add uh, social you know, environments to that as well, digital environments to all of that. I, I think, you know, there's definitely a, a line of, you know, the kids who just grew up with it and are intuitive and have intuition for it. Um, I think it had, uh, and then there are those of us who are, you know, figuring it out, at least, you know, and trying and always seem to be catching up, so to speak. Well, I think that's right. And it seems to me what you're getting at a little bit is is not just the family environment, right, that kids bring to mm-hmm. the schools, but kids are also surrounding themselves with a social media environment that influences their attitudes and their behaviors. And, you know, as, as you and I have talked about quite a bit, right. Is, is the percentage of kids with smartphones is, has risen dramatically. And, and that's a good chunk of their socialization right there. So someone in your position is not only dealing with the family down the street, but now, Little Cordova is actually part of a global social media environment. Right. It's a very different world. Yep. When we built that, uh, when I showed up there in 2006, you know, social media was evolving, but Facebook hadn't arrived quite yet, you know, for example. And so we're putting together uh, uh, this network for a single site district in rural Alaska, and we figure a thousand IP addresses ought to cover it. Even with a one-to-one laptop program, we figured a thousand Whoa. IP ad. <laughs> right, as the as the geeks go nuts. Well, you all know this. <laughs> I, I think my house has a thousand IP addresses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it was literally an explosion, and uh, we had to rebuild the network. And the kids are you were know, showing up to school with those devices, younger and younger. And uh, the elementary school had a whole different set of rules about, you know, what the kids could do with their cell phones and when they could uh, use them. The kids seemed to be responsive, uh, but I, I think that what I would like to have seen, and I suspect it'll evolve, is that that training gets started right away in kindergarten, you know, formally, um, and that they've come to kindergarten with, you know, uh, some understanding of what it means to, you know, go online. Um, I know Korea has been doing it for years. They teach their kids cyber safety, you know, uh, things through song and, and in the curriculum of the day. So um, that's always been a hard sell for, for me as a, you know, tech specialist who wrote plans for probably 20 districts in the state and was to get them to incorporate 
that in their curriculum, there's always the issue of, okay, who's going to write the curriculum? Who's going to provide the content? Who's going to pay us to do this? And, you know, we learned that, no, it's more integral than that. But I still think that there's still room for, you know, understanding what your role is when you pick up those devices and when you pick them up. I would tell kids, you know, your school email address is like your work email address. You should learn to treat it that way. It's not your personal email address, and that's different. And uh, you know, they had a hard time with that even. And um, and uh, but I would still insist that they learn to use their school email address for school business. Use your personal email address for personal stuff. Yeah. We're still learning that one. And you know, you're talking about kindergarten kids learning how to um, understand what it means to go online. But you know, today where so many schools are still remote the kids already are experiencing that. And, you know, how can you, how can you not teach those things to kids that young when it's required for school for them to join a zoom meeting or, or whatever the case may be. I mean, that's, that's just a huge shift that uh, nobody saw coming or was prepared for um, except those who, you know, like in Alaska, we've already been doing some of that stuff for a long time. So there's, there's some power in that. Well, you know, it's interesting, Keith. I, I hadn't heard about the South Korea experience, and now I want to look into oh. that a little bit. But given the fact that the average age of first device use here in the United States is about 10 months, it, yeah. it, it just becomes absolutely clear that we have to start introducing these concepts of education and proper usage and respect and so forth much earlier than I think we have been so far. Yes. Well, I really would like to see that be started right off in, in any kind of formalized educational setting where you're going to use a device. Then you're talking to the kids about uh, you know appropriate use, even posture, sitting at it and holding mm -hmm. the device. Uh, all those things should be, you know, like, old habits by the time they're in second grade. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. And, and that's, that is one of the reasons that if you take a look at, at raising cyberethical kids, you'll see that I'm really encouraging parents to start these conversations pretty much as soon as kids get their hands on devices, because it's a long conversational process to help kids mm -hmm. deal with all of this. You know, Fred, the, uh, that reference to Korea was a frontline article that was produced a few years back. And it oh, was okay. a few years back. Uh, Growing Up Online is the first title. Mm -hmm. It's about a 45-minute movie. And then the second one, the follow-up, I think it came along two years later called Digital Nation. Oh, fantastic. Well, I will look both of those up, Keith, yeah. and we'll add them to the show notes, which is I think, a real help for the folks who are listening to the show. I think that the, anyone who watched them, you, you'll certainly have some dated information in there, sure. but conceptually, there's still really solid information in there for people to consider as they're raising their children <laughs> with, <laughs> with digital devices. And, I, and I'm late to the party, but I will throw in the social dilemma as well, because I watched that yes. about two weeks ago, and it was really mesmerizing. Yeah, that's the one on Netflix, no? Yes, it yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, I've watched that a couple times, too. 
Yeah. And it's a little scary, actually. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> yeah. My friend uh, and colleague, longtime colleague, uh, uh, we work together. And if uh, whatever successes I've had in, in ed tech is as much due to my friend's help and work, uh, Jim Newman. And uh, he lives in McGrath, Alaska these days. And Keith, as expected, this has been a great conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us and share oh, your wisdom um, and experience because it really, truly is uh, has great depth to it. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure, pleasure, Keith. Thanks so much, Fred. Oh, you're more than welcome. And thank you. I well, will that... listen to these more. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. Oh, that yeah. wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, IT best practices, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have enjoyed the podcast. So please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate you have we appreciate you joining us today and look forward to having you join us for our next episode. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.